to the Jerusalem Lights podcast with Rabbi Chaim Richman, whose goal is Torah for everyone. I'm your co-host, Jim Long. And now, Rabbi Chaim Richman. Shalom and happy Purim Katan. Happy, happy Purim Katan. So why is it called the little Purim? The minor Purim. Well, minor. it's actually as you and I are sitting down to microphone here in Jerusalem today. It's so exciting once again, Jim, that you are here in the land. Today is actually the 15th of the first Adar, which is the Shushan, Shushan Purim, as you know, falls out on the 15th of Adar. But again, we have this very unusual configuration wherein we have the first Adar and the second Adar. And even though the truth is that Purim and all the dates of Adar are really observed in the second Adar. Okay, but what is, where does that leave us? Are we in some sort of a twilight zone? Do, 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 do. Are we somehow in some sort of suspended state? What is the, what is the extra Adar? And the, and the truth is, yes, it is a calendrial accommodation and a, um, a very, very wise calculation of the sages to align the lunar and the solar calendar. But besides that, on the deeper level, as I shared with many of our Zoom audience this week, um, it's still a day, Purim is still Purim, and it's still a day of rejoicing. And so the minor Purim, which of course, for most of the world, Purim is held on the, on the 14th, is a day of um, special prayers and special beseeching of Hashem and special deliverance and salvation. And so too today, with those of us who live in walled cities like Jerusalem, it is not Purim, but it, yet it is somehow a day that uh, is calling out to us, beckoning to us, reminding us of the joy of Hashem's presence and His providence, and it's a special time for, for prayer. So it's great that we are sitting together today, and of course, I'll just give it away and tell our listeners that you did have lentil soup here again for lunch, <laughs> one of your favorites. You you deigned the hot dogs be, uh, because you, you didn't feel like you wanted both. Yeah. I had them ready, but um, you, you did enjoy that, my wife's soup. Oh, um, well, yeah, uh, the Rebbitson is a wonderful cook, and uh, I have, I've been able to enjoy the repast that she has uh, cooked up uh, these past few days. So and, I just don't want anyone to think that you would come all the way to the land of Israel and you, and you wouldn't get soup. But yeah, you, well, you know, I come here just for the soup, you know. Well, it's, it's been said. So, Jim, tell me, are you enjoying your time in the Holy Land? I am having, uh, as always, I'm having the time of my life. I think I told you earlier today that I officially found out that I'm an old person now. Yes, yes. There was a, there was an incident on a bus where a driver actually he was being very courteous and very yeah. and very differential. He told you that you you were um, actually um, deserving of a discount on your yeah. on your bus fare because you're an old man. I wouldn't have put it that way. It's a shame he didn't just say, um, "Sir, um, you can have the senior citizen discount," right? Rather than in his broken English saying, "You are an old man." Yeah. But okay, these things are are sobering. My, my feelings and, were not hurt because I understood there was a little bit of a cultural gap. You right. know, he was he was an Arab man. He was very very kind. In fact, it, it was an old style bus that didn't take the cards or the the apps that we currently use over here for the bus. And when I noticed it took money, I I, I thought, okay. And he was going to let me go on the ride for for six shekels. He wasn't going to charge me. So I reached in. I asked him, I said, Kesef, you know, shekels. And he, he nodded. So I got out six shekels. And that's when he said to me in a very kind voice, you are an old man. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not making this up. And I thought, what? And he goes, you're an old man. You'll get the 50% discount, sir. It's only three shekels. Oh, my goodness. Oh, okay. 
you know, realized, okay, Jim, you do have gray hair. What he, what's he supposed to think? Right. So, well, the fact is, it's a, a beautiful thing when a culture is respectful of uh, people that are older in recognition of their uh, experience, life experience and the fact that they really do deserve respect as Torah requires. So I'm going to use this now with my wife, you know, when I get back, whenever she says anything to me and I don't want to do it, I'm going to say, it's official, dear. I'm an old man. Oh, moving right along, Jim. You know, last week's program, um, it was very exciting to be able to talk about these things, the concept of Mashiach, you know, who and, and what and when, and, and uh, um, we got a lot of interest in that, in that program, rightly so, because it's a riveting subject and so important. And it's something that we're all participatory in as well. First of all, on the deeper level, there's the concept that Again, that soul, which, which, by the way, John wrote again, and he asked if, uh, if we wanted to make sure he understood that we were saying that this person is a direct lineal descendant of King David, as if it could be proven by DNA. And, such. and, I, and I, my answer is yes, absolutely. And the whole concept of lineage, of course, is very important in, in Jewish circles. Um, for example, the whole idea of who is a Kohen, who is a Levi, who is Israel, you know, who is uh, the Kohanim descendant of Aaron. Um, we keep track of these things, and there is a direct um, repercussion in everyday life. For example, the, the Kohanim today, the priestly caste, as it were, has duties, privileges, and responsibilities, um, more so in the land of Israel in, ter in terms of certain things. But the fact is that every day <clears throat> here in the land of Israel, the Kohanim ascend to bless the people in the synagogue Whereas in the diaspora, that's only on the holidays. <clears throat> and so, you know, if a person's father and grandfather uh, preserve that tradition, then we have it today. <clears throat> True, many communities were destroyed in the Holocaust and in other calamities and entire town's records were destroyed. And interestingly, you know, we're talking about Mashiach. One of the descriptions, the job descriptions of Elijah the prophet who, as we all know from the verse in Malachi, at the end of Malachi, is the, is the harbinger. He comes before Mashiach to pave the way, as it were. One of the interesting things about the tradition of Elijah the prophet is that he reinstates all the people who's, who are not clear about their lineage. He has some sort of a spiritual sixth sense, and he's able to tell who is who. But anyway, so again, there are, uh, even, there are even families that have documents and, and um, that can trace their, their lineage, and there are families in, in Israel today that can trace their lineage to King David. Yeah, I, you know, Rashi was a descendant of King David. So was the Baal Shem Tov and Rabbi Nachman. And there are people today that are descendant of, of King David. And just as the Kohanim today, we all know that there is a special DNA test, which actually can substantiate that one is a Kohen because there's a one particular chromosome, which is shared only by Kohanim all over the world, whether black or white, whether of European descent or of Asian descent, that they all have this one um, special aspect of, of their, of it's their a, a marker. It's unbelievable because there's a, there's, there's a verse in, in mm -hmm. Leviticus and a verse in Deuteronomy that says, Hashem says, this is an eternal covenant between me and him and his sons forever. And so they carry that stamp even in, in their very flesh. Interesting you mentioned that because yesterday, Rabbi, I had coffee with Yaakov Kleiman. The in, author of a book about DNA right. and the Kohanim. DNA and the Bible. And he's, I think he's the one that's done the most extensive research on this subject. He lectures on it all over. And that we were just talking about this very thing. And I was asking him, you know, I said, some of the new research, I can't think of the, the very lengthy word that is used to describe how trauma and experience that will actually impact your DNA 
And I said, you know, this is so amazing to talk about this because last week's Parsha, uh, Aaron, for seven days, becoming the, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. And I said, wouldn't that, wouldn't that be such a remarkable thing to literally go through for seven days to know that you're going to be the first in a long line, that it would impact your oh, DNA? Amazing. Could that have been actually the thing that created that mutation. Oh my goodness, that's that, so amazing. That we call the Cohen modal haplotype. Right. And so certainly by the same token, you know, yes, Mashiach is is a lineal descendant of King David, and it and it uh, isn't hard to imagine because there are people today that even that we know that are descendants of King David. Not me, I'm just a regular Jew. But anyway, um, this is all so interesting and so important because it, it also is, um, it brings us to other, questions and, and to other uh, levels of understanding regarding the whole era that we live in now. You know, we're talking about the coming of Mashiach. And one of the things that we pointed out last week was this idea of that verse in Isaiah 60, achishana. and Hashem says, I will bring it about in its time, but in its time, I will hasten it. And the idea that, you know, if we are, if we merit, you know, to a scenario that is, that is more, um, <clears throat> you know, um, positive as it were, that is more, that is more, um, you know that that's not with suffering. You know it's not with it's not with the difficulty. Then we then that's the scenario of it of it coming uh, in our in our merit when Hashem hastens it. So people are asking, what age are we in now? You know, what age are we in now? Are we in the pre-messianic era? Are we in the messianic era? People ask these questions and. It's very, very interesting when we read what our sages say about the pre-Messianic era, or, or specifically the era that I would refer to as the birth pangs mm-hmm. of the Messiah. The footsteps. <laughs> the footsteps. Well, yeah. well, the footsteps, yes, but there's, there's, this, there's another expression, the birth pangs, which right. implies that there's a certain amount of travail, yeah. of, of stress. And interestingly, um, associated with that idea, which, by the way, I mean, there's no question about it that that's exactly where we are right now. First of all, the sages share amazing traditions about how the generation just prior to the coming of the Mashiach is so. Listen to this, and you'll get a chill. You'll just you'll get a chill, like I like to see you fall off your chair, listener. The generation in which Mashiach prepares to come is so technologically advanced. In Chazal, our sages said this how many thousands of years ago, too? They say it's so technologically advanced that it has the capacity to bring about its own destruction in one move. And that's, that's your hand on the button. That's where we are today. Exactly. And, and it talks about the, the sages of Israel and all of their sources talk about how there's so much technological advancement in the time of the coming of the Mashiach that it causes confusion and some degree of chaos, and that, uh, and I think I've mentioned this before, but that the greatest challenge in the generation of Mashiach is a wave of disbelief, of atheism, that it basically is washing over the world, and and that people need to, you know, consider carefully their relationship with Hashem and and th- that whole idea, and the whole idea of all of the signs that basically indicate that this is the time you know it's not a question of like going out on a limb and interpreting signs when you talk about the reestablishment of the state of israel and the gathering of the exiles and all of the things that that we are going through in the in these generations 
And this leads me to another question that I'd like to talk about. And, and once again, I'd like to focus on an email that we received this week from a, a wonderful woman who is asking a question. She's asking something very direct and something that really needs to be uh, something that really needs to be um, answered. And that is, okay, what is the deal exactly? Non-Jews and Torah study. Mm-hmm. Right. Are non-Jews allowed to study the Torah? Is it permitted or is it forbidden? Is it encouraged or is it merely tolerated? And this is such an interesting uh, question. Obviously, uh, for us in Jerusalem Lights, I guess you already know the answer because the whole motto of our organization is Torah for everyone. And we firmly believe that we have a responsibility to bring the light of Torah to all people and that all people that are seeking a relationship with Hashem and that want to study Torah are welcome to do so and encouraged to do so. And that and more than that, that it's the secret of life. Whereas the reason that this question is asked is because there are many rabbis and there, and there is an opinion out there that no, non-Jews are not supposed to study the Torah or at best they're supposed to study only those portions of it that are, uh, you know, that are <clears throat> relevant to their seven commandments, you know, the Noahide covenant. And so I'd like to really weigh in on this because it's such an important um, question that uh, very sincere people have, and they and they want to know where exactly do they do they stand with Torah study. And the reason that this ha- is actually a natural segue from last week's program is because um, this is an aspect of all people contributing towards the coming of the Mashiach, and an aspect of the uh, spiritual fulfillment maturation, fruition of why we were placed in this world altogether, which is only to know Hashem and only to bring Hashem's light into this world, well, how are we going to do that exactly, right? So the first thing that I want to say is, you know, I think that it is very myopic, limiting, and even degrading for a Jew to think that the Torah is only for the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It's like, what is this? It's like, it's like uh, our thing, like it's in a drawer here somewhere, and I don't want anybody else to look at it. It's can't, it can't be. There are billions of people in the world. And every single human being is created in God's image. And every single per- human being has a godly soul and has basically the same goal. Now, there may be different approaches to what our, uh, to, to, to get to that goal. And there are also different requirements, surely. But the goal of human existence in this world is to fix ourselves, to fix the world, to overcome our base nature and to choose life. Right, and to fill the world with with the light generated by good deeds, and we all have choices to make about um, <clears throat> refining our character and becoming better people, and that that applies equally to Jews and to non-Jews. You know, Rabbi, I was reading through the Torah parsha this week, uh, Ketisa, and you you had told me you had, you said there is there are things that uh, echo or suggest that Hashem establishes the idea that that uh, He wants His people to be able, if there are those who want to learn Torah, that they can do so, and they can do so with, you know, the blessing of the Creator. And there were four or five uh, passages in the Torah Parsha this week, or the the one that we're talking about right now, that spoke to me very deeply that that God, in essence, is saying there's a need for the non-Jew to be aware of the Torah on many levels, because if we are not aware of these certain things that are spoken of in this Torah Parsha, how can we validate that you are indeed the chosen people? 
that you are actually our priesthood. How would we know that? I mean, if you if you just came on the scene and said, "Oh, by the way, we're your priesthood," uh, you know, I got to ask you. I got to interrupt you right now and yeah. ask you a question. What in the world does it mean to be the chosen people? Well, uh, you, I mean, my because, understanding of it, you or, know, it, it, it's used also, you know, like as as an anti-Semitic canard. Also, it's used like, against. Yes. It's used against. So, like, but, but did I ask to be chosen? <laughs> did I? Well, in the, if you open the Torah, you never call yourselves a chosen people. True, Hashem calls exactly. you that because, and the reason that you were chosen to to receive the Torah. He, on behalf of the world. Exactly. Okay, so I wanted to say something very interesting here. And clearly what this program is about today is the fact that there are two covenants that Hashem made with all of humanity. The second the second one was with Israel at Sinai based on 613 commandments. But the first one was with all humanity, the descendants of Adam, and then again ratified through Noah of the seven universal laws, which is a an outline that contains many, many commandments and a way of life in Torah. We'll talk about that specifically, but the idea is, as I said, there are two different approaches to the same, to the same path. The end goal is the same. But, you know, regarding this question of um, Israel being the chosen people, that, of course, will, the, tw- the twin segue, the twin, ha- the other half of that question is, or what is the role of the Gentiles altogether in the ultimate plan? Regarding God's choice of Israel, we have, oh, Ogden Nash, no, before Ogden Nash, yeah. I think it was Dorothy Parker who actually, it's, the whole thing is attributed to Ogden Nash, American poet, but it was Dorothy Parker, American poet, who, who actually said, how odd of God to choose the Jews. Yeah. Ogden Nash, American poet, 1902 to 1971, um, he tweaked it and he, and he added, it wasn't odd, the Jews chose God. Amen. Cecil Brown <laughs> added, but not so odd as those who choose a Jewish God, but spurn the Jews. Ouch. Ouch. But anyway, what does it mean to be chosen? So I always defined it as <clears throat> the idea that Hashem chose Israel. First of all, again, we, we chose Hashem. He offered the Torah and we, and we accepted it. He cho- he, the whole thing started, if you'll pardon me, with Avraham. The whole thing started with Abraham, who ha- who was historic and a precedent and never before was there someone and ever since actually was there someone in the world with the burning desire that he had to find God in this world. It was so consuming. It was so, and all the Midrashim point to that and the whole, the whole idea of or custom and Hashem calling him his friend and Ezekiel saying one was Abraham, the whole idea that there was a person that was so totally driven and obsessed with finding God and bringing him into this world, that that was all he he cared about. And so that's how the whole thing started with the Avot, with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. The thing is, in my mind, what it means that God chose the Jews is that he chose the Jews to basically <clears throat> prove, show to the world that there is a God. And, and honestly, that this is a very simple definition, the way I've always tried to explain it to people, is that when you see a Jew walking down the street after everything that we've been through all these thousands of years, it can only mean one thing, whether you like it or not, and whether you like them or not. you got to admit, something's going on here, right. because there's no other explanation. But to be more scriptural about it, I must share with you an unbelievable verse in Isaiah 43, in verse 10, where Hashem says, you are my witnesses the word of Hashem, and my servants, whom I have chosen, so that you will know and believe in me and understand that I am he. Before me, nothing was created by a God, nor will there be after me. And yes, by the way, as an aside, 
Isaiah 43 here, you are my witnesses, the word of Hashem, and my servant. And yes, for all the people that have a hang up about Isaiah 53, again, the servant is Israel all throughout consistently the entire book of Isaiah. So don't pick out one thing and say, oh, you found the missing link. The servant is Israel. But what I want to tell you that's unbelievable is this verse. Hashem says, you are my witnesses. Mm -hmm. The Midrash says an unbelievable thing. Unbelievable thing about what this means. Midrash explains. What does it mean you are my witnesses? In these words, Jim, I'm not making it up. The Midrash says, I hold you responsible for teaching my godliness to the world. Mm -hmm. So I ask you, how could there be a conscious but in Noah movement, how could there be people that are escaping paganity and that want to embrace Hashem? And how could Israel fulfill its, its mission without Jews teaching non-Jews the Torah? The same book, Isaiah, uh, an earlier chapter, chapter 2, verses 3. Uh, it, it talks about the people, and as we get near the, 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 the last days, Isaiah says that the, the, the non-Jews, it says the nations will, will go up to the house of Jacob what is the house of Jacob? It's the Holy the temple. temple. And it says that uh, they, they want to go up and they will ask that they will be taught the ways of God. So who's going to do that? Exactly. Who's going to do that? And, and I was reading a commentary. Uh, I have one. I have a whole commentary by this gentleman uh, called Malbim. That's, of course, a, a, an acronym. Yes. For He has a very lengthy name. Yes. He's, it, he's Rabbi Mayor. Well, she's actually one of the greatest commentators on the prophets right and he Classic. lived in the late 1800s and he in, was um i think it was poland or russia no in um oh goodness uh was it was it hungary um pressburg pressburg i uh, think i think it, it was um yeah. prussia at the time maybe well, what, he, what he says is that reading this he concludes that based on the prophecy in isaiah that the obligation will be there to teach the nations, that the Jews will teach the nations, and that even the language in the prophecy alludes to the fact that the nations will want to will be so compelled and so interested that, that they will want to know even the minutiae of, of the words of the prophets and the words of Torah. That, that people are going to be so, I think, I think we're describing our listeners, if I can maybe so bold. Absolutely. This is what Jerusalem Lights is all about in recognition, in, in respect, and in appreciation and admiration of all the souls that are looking for Hashem. By that's the way, exactly what it is. Yeah, I want to interject here that if you, if you want to do additional reading on this, you can go to the, to the Talmud, but the trouble, there's a bit of a frustration you might find is that, the, the Talmud will give you a, a whole series of pros and cons. There are sages mm -hmm. that say that uh, the Jews should teach uh, the Torah to the nations, and there, were, there will be those commentators who say no. But but you'll find because the Talmud is a record yeah. of the discussion and, the, and the evolution and the and the and the and the development of thought and of Jewish law. And this is one of the things that I want to talk about in this program is how to approach these these books as well. But the thing is, you know, here we're talking about the idea of Zechariah 14 says that on that day, Hashem and his name will be one, which is intimating that they're not one now, which doesn't make any sense. But the idea is that in, in the eyes of so many people, Hashem has an identity crisis because they don't know who he is. And the goal of, of, his, of human history is to take us towards this place where Everybody knows, you know, again, another verse in Isaiah that the knowledge of God will cover the earth like the water of the sea. 
And that most precious commodity will be that everybody knows Hashem. And another verse is Jeremiah this time, where a person is not going to say to his friend, no God, because everybody is going to know who Hashem is, right? But the unbelievable thing is, and again, I, I want to address the fact that there are apparently rabbinical opinions that, that dissuade people, that turn them off, that, that keep them at arm's length, right? Mm-hmm. And you, you know what? I think a lot of that is um, based on the Jewish experience over the millennia, right. wherein the Jewish people, unfortunately, at the hands of the nations, suffering exile after exile and persecution, they lost a certain degree of the spiritual underpinnings and calling of the prophets to be a light to the nations, and they became insular. And they became, and they almost, uh, the Jewish people in general, almost kind of morphed into a survival mode, whereas originally, I think the calling, the Torah's calling on Israel is to be more, if you'll pardon the expression, evangelical in terms Mm -hmm. of going out and um, being out there as far as teaching the world about Hashem. Well, it's a, it's a function of history. It's a function of uh, of all of mankind moving upward towards the ultimate redemption. It's very clear that when you read these opinions in the oral tradition and in the, in the Talmud, is that the, the that the people the the commentaries you read that say no, we shouldn't do that reflects their time in history where. Can you imagine a Jew speaking up in medieval Europe and saying, uh, I, I can teach you guys about the Torah. I mean, they would they would burn him at the stake. But yeah, you're 100% right. But yet the most beautiful thing in the world that I want to tell you is that Rashi, the holy Rashi, mm-hmm. who lived, what, in the 1100s, right. at a time when the hand of the church was already heavy on the Jewish people, and the Jewish people were already under censorship, and they were very, very careful, mm-hmm. and they were, and they were being persecuted, uh, just as you're describing. But yet, on Deuteronomy six, on the on the hallmark verse of Jewish faith, Shema Yisrael, right? right? Here, O Israel, Hashem, who is our God, Hashem is one. Now, many people know that there are literally, and I'm not exaggerating, hundreds of different kavanot. That means the different intentions and different ideas. That that verse expresses, and in fact, every day when we say when we recite that verse in prayer, there are many many things that a Jew has to have in mind when he utters that line, and and they all are born at once. They are all carried at once by the significance of the verse. What it means that Hashem, who is Eloheinu, who is our God, He is one God. But Rashi himself, on that verse. He gives us a, a kavanah. He tells us a simple intention of what the verse really means. And it's so simple and it's so beautiful. You know what he says? You know how he explains it? He says, this is what the verse means in its simplest level. He says, Hashem, who is our God, one day today, one day will be recognized as Hashem by the whole world. Yeah. Now, that's, you know, on, a, on one foot, the whole Torah is in a way Shema Yisrael. And Rashi is saying, this is the goal. This is the goal that one day the whole world will recognize that Hashem is God. Now, again, how is that going to come about? Avraham Avinu in Genesis 12 is that unbelievable verse. It says that when they left Avraham and Sarah, they took with them the souls that they made in Haran. Right. And that's a, it's an impossible Hebrew verse. It says, the souls that they created. And the intention is the people that they brought to a knowledge of Hashem. 
Right. And it wasn't only converts. It was also the, 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 the nations who they brought out to be closer to Hashem, to walk in his way. Well, you know, the, again, the Torah Parsha alludes to this in, in several places. And I was looking at verse uh, 33, 19, when, when Moshe Rabbeinu says, can I see your glory? And Hashem says, well, no man can see me and live. And so he, he hides him in the cleft of the rock. And he says, and you will see my glory pass by. God is saying, you will see my glory. You will understand who I am when you see history. It's because history will confirm it. And we wouldn't know what to confirm if we didn't already know Torah. And history in Hebrew is <clears throat> historia, which literally means Hashem is hidden. Yeah. Hashem's hand is hidden in history. By the way, it sounds also very much like hysteria, <clears throat> which is also true. <laughs> but anyway, what you just said is so unbelievably powerful because this, this whole idea of in the episode of the Golden Calf that Moshe said to Hashem, um, show me your glory. One of the major ways that it's understood is that basically Moshe was asking, <clears throat> why do good people suffer? He wanted to understand the whole dynamic of, of what we you know, what we perceive and, and Hashem's justice. And it was, a, it was a very, very intense question. <clears throat> so the sages tell us something amazing in the Midrash. And again, and one of the things that I want to get to in this program today is the concept of the Midrash and the way that, it, that ideas are given over to us by the sages in metaphor and in allegory. Because that's one of the issues regarding Jews studying non-Torah, non-Jews studying Torah is the question of how to understand these things. So here's an example. Before I even get to that, the Midrash says that um, when Moshe asked that question to Hashem, like, show me your glory. So Hashem showed him the back of his tefillin. Wow. The back of his tefillin. Now, of mm -hmm. course, this is only a metaphor. And right. again, our sages employ poetic vehicles of words to impart deep, deep insights, uh, psychological insights, spiritual insights. I call, I call the vehicle of the Midrash a psychodrama. So everybody who knows what tefillin look like, the head tefillin, knows that, that it's four sections because it contains four different partiot, four different sections of Torah on parchments. And they, they are separated, the four boxes. But in the back, there's a knot. So by telling us that, of course, Hashem doesn't have a head and doesn't have a body and doesn't wear its filling, but the idea is it's something we can identify with. So by telling us that he showed him his back and he showed him the knot, the idea is this, open up your heart in the deepest way, because this is such a beautiful idea. The idea is if I would be looking from the front, I would see separation. I would see things that I don't understand. I would see different, I would see different approaches, but from the back, Everything is unified. It's, I see only one, the one not, meaning that in hindsight, like you said about history, mm -hmm. in hindsight, that's, that's how we can understand. We can't understand. No man sees my face and lives. You can't, you can't understand it as it's happening. By the way, to quote uh, the big Lebowski, the, 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 the back of the tefillin ties the whole thing together. Okay, everybody, you want to Jim to quote a movie in this episode? <laughs> there you got it. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Um, speaking of Rambam and not rolling on Shabbat and everything else. Right. Okay. So, Jim, I just want to clarify one more thing also before I forget <clears throat> something that we already mentioned and we've gone on from there. But I, I was talking about the whole concept of the chosen people and 
what what I think it means. In other words, that God didn't choose us to be the best um, Hollywood film producers or pediatricians or Wall Street brokers, which we all, which we are, of course, but that's just a coincidence. Mm-hmm. But he chose the Jewish people to bring the message of his existence <clears throat> throughout the saga of human history. It's not a, it's not a club. And this is so important for people to understand because people think, oh, you're the chosen people. And they think that we're like snide, you know, like it's a snobby thing, you know, like it's, oh, I'm in the frequent flyer club. You know, I don't know if you're in the frequent flyer club or not. I'm not. And so, you know, you look in there like what they have these sandwiches in there and they have like, they have like hors d'oeuvres and drinks and that. I don't know what's going on in there because the door opens really quickly and I'm trying to get a peek whoop, and then it closes again because you can't get in there. Right. So people think, what well, does that, what it means to be the, the chosen people that we have, we're in the platinum club or something like that. And so I always say, no, yeah, yeah. There's a club and you know where it is. It's like Auschwitz. Pardon yeah. me for saying yeah. that, but no, that's where the sign is here. And here's what I mean by that. What I mean by that is very simple. <clears throat> it's a verse in the, in the prophet Amos, Amos, chapter three and verse two. And this is what it means to be the chosen people. It says, you alone did I know from among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will hold you to account for all your iniquities. In other words, it's a sliding scale. And and he holds Israel much more responsible because we we received the Torah. And that's what the frequent flyer club is. That's what the club is, really. It's because you're the older brother. And the older brother has has the more has the most responsibility of anybody in the family, and it, it it and so it goes with God's family, you know. But it won't always be that way. And here again, uh, we go to Zephania. Zephaniah is that how you pronounce it in English? Chapter three and verse nine tells us: For then, talking about the messianic era, for then I will change the nations to speak a pure language, so that they all will proclaim the name of Hashem to worship him with a united resolve. That's the whole goal. And this takes us back to the whole idea of why Torah at Mount Sinai was simultaneously heard, as it were, from the mouth of Hashem in 70 languages. Why did the Jews need it in seven languages? Also in in Deuteronomy, when they came into the land and they made these huge monuments where they the entire Torah was mm-hmm. plastered onto and limestone onto these stones. It was also in 70 languages. And the idea is it's like a mezuzah. Yes. Yeah. The, the, the idea is that there is a calling for the whole world. You know, that the, the most basic verse of all, I, I think, uh, and I don't know how you would relate to this if you, if you don't believe that we're supposed that the Jewish people are supposed to be teaching uh, Torah to the nations is, but is, the most basic verse of all is this one. Uh, I am Hashem. It's Isaiah 42. I have called you with righteousness. I will strengthen your hand. I will protect you. I will set you for a covenant for the people, for a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to remove a prisoner from confinement, dwellers in darkness from a dungeon. That is the job description, to be a light to the nations. The verses continue. What is it that we're supposed to be a light uh, to the nations? What are we supposed to tell them? Verses continue, chapter 42 and verse 8. I am Hashem. That is my name. I shall not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven idols. <clears throat> and so this is the, the whole idea of what we're supposed to be all about. And so, and so I understand, again, uh, the <clears throat> position of those that are more insular, that are more browbeaten kind of 
by experience, but it's a misrepresentation for non-Jews to think that they are not permitted to study Torah. Yes, there is, there is this position in the Talmud that makes it, makes it clear that they, they should only be occupied with that part of the Torah that is relevant to them, meaning the Sheva Mitzvot. But that in itself is, is, a, is a misleading statement because the Sheva Mitzvot, the seven commandments of the, of the universal covenant of, of Noahide, is in itself, according to many authorities, an outline that, it, that encompasses many, many, many more mitzvot to the extent that Mom, Maimonides himself, the Rambam says that a non-Jew who wishes to fulfill practically any of the other commandments, including those that he is not obligated in, and he wishes to do so in order to, to, to receive merit, may do so. And we may not discourage him from doing so. And similarly, there's a statement in the Talmud that says that a non-Jew who is occupied with Torah can rise to the level of being as holy as the high priest. Yeah. So, so what is the, what is the um, proviso or what, what is the whole issue really all about in my mind? <clears throat> I'll tell you what it is. It's very simple. And this is something that I do agree with. When a non-Jew is interested in studying Torah because he is into ecumenism, you know, he's into comparative religion. He wants to taste it. He wants to see how it fits in with a particular, let's say, Christological uh, understanding. He wants to, he wants to maybe back up his own positions through, through the Jewish positions and that type of thing. That I totally invalidate. That is definitely forbidden. But when we're talking about a non-Jew who, in all sincerity, is searching and wants to understand and wants to learn the Torah and, 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 and his motivation is sincere, that, that person is certainly, and I want to encourage, absolutely, I want, I want to encourage that person. The, the person that, that I discourage is the person who has an ulterior motive, who has an agenda, who has some sort of um, other reason for wanting to get into it. But the person who, is, who wants Hashem Oh my goodness, the person who whose heart is for Hashem. This is who this is what it's all about. It all boils down to the intention exactly. of, of the person. If you if you want to study it because you want to get you want to get a leg up on on the rabbis, if you want to take it and learn from it, and they even some of the commentators say this to take it and even start your own religion, then you have created a golden calf. Every Nahid I've met. We've been driven by one thing. God, who are you? What are you? And what do I do to really live the life that you want me to live? And, and that's the whole thing. You're living proof. And all of our of our the members of our Jewish Lights community that are listening, they know very well that they are living proof of the age that we are living in. And everything has changed. We, this age is different than all others, and partly because of the technology that we mentioned, which is in itself a sign of the coming of Mashiach imminently, and the technology that can be used for good and to, to fill Hashem's light in the world. And the idea is that this is um, <clears throat> the calling, as it were, of, of what's going on now. That's what Torah for Everyone is all about. That's the whole inspiration of Jerusalem Lights. And the, and the whole concept is, it's so important for a spiritual seeker to have a rabbi. You know why? Because there are so many different opinions, a Jew, a Jew also needs a rabbi because you can't satisfy everybody and you have to know that the path that you're on is, is clear and supported. And the thing is, you know, the more the Noahide wants to um, delve into Torah and make it his own, 
the more questions he's going to have about how to apply things, how to understand the ramifications of the covenant, because the world that we're living in is changing. And there is so many mitzvot, so many commandments that do apply. It's not just about not tearing the limb from a living uh, animal. It's not just about establishing courts of justice. It's not just about not murdering in sexual sins. It's about how to treat other people. It's about business. It's about holidays. It's about faith. It's about prayer. It's about so many things. And so it's important to have someone to be able to take counsel with and who will, for you, will represent the transmission of Torah from Sinai, which was exactly what a rabbi is. The whole thing that a rabbi is, is this, this person is embodying for you the response of what Torah would be to you. But it's so important for us to understand when we speak about Torah, we're not speaking about a certain word that I don't like to use, that I never use. You know what word that is, Jim? I don't like to use the word religion. Right. I don't like to say that, that Judaism is a religion because I don't believe it is. I believe no. that the Jewish people are a people. A people have a way of life. They are definitely a people. And the and Torah is, I, I don't like the word religion because it bespeaks this little kind of corner in a, in a, in a sea of, of secularism, of banality, of mundanity. So I have religion, meaning I have my ritual. I light my candle on this day. I do this, I do that. The Torah is so much more than that. It's a total encompassing mindset and way of life. And that's so important. This is not about religion. This is about Hashem. Hashem is it's not about a religion. It's about reality. And the importance of emunah, of faith in Hashem. And this is also something that's very distinctive to Torah and to, and to the Jewish mindset that also applies to non-Jews and those that are like the high priest because they're studying the Torah, right? It is, it's not an armchair philosophy. You know, the, the Torah experience, I, notice I didn't say Judaism because now we're talking about Torah for everyone. The Torah experience is not about Oh, I believe this and this, and no, it's about if you because if you do believe that, then what are you doing about it? Because everything about Torah is action. Look at these portions that we've had now, Turma and Tzavah, about building the temple where we had a hundred times, and you shall make it, and they shall make it, and they shall make it, and they shall make it. It's all about it. And that's a perfect example. We're called upon to act in this world. It's not just about what I'm thinking. It's about what I'm doing. It's also about what I'm thinking. To me, it's become abundantly clear through the years that none of the Torah should be closed off to me. We're going to see as we go along in the Torah that God establishes the idea that that a flesh and blood teacher uh, will th- that concept will never go away uh, until you know we get to a time when the whole world embraces Torah. But uh, and this brings I'm coming to a point here. This all brings me back to my favorite verse in regard to what we're talking about from Zechariah, where he says uh, of the time coming in the days, the days to come in the future, that 10 men from every nations and every tongue shall grab the, the corner, the tzitzit of the garment of a Jew and say, take us with you because we have seen that God is with you. Exactly. And that, that is exactly what the role of the Jew is in the world. And that means to open up our hearts and to open up the Torah to the non-Jewish world Again, I, I absolutely forbid an, a non-Jew to come to me because he has a plan that is based on guile of manipulating or exploiting or using it for his own, God forbid, for his own agenda that will harm the Jewish people or other people. Or And you know exactly what I'm talking about, all sorts of, uh, all sorts of uh, trolls and closet missionaries and all sorts of things that it happens, unfortunately, and it, that's why some rabbis are very wary. But I'm talking about the people that we know, that we meet, that we, that we dedicate our lives to who are filled with a desire and a love of Hashem 
and they are absolutely encouraged to continue their odyssey of coming close to Hashem through Torah. Obviously, it goes without saying that there are certainly parts of Torah that are not relevant to them. And I don't have to apologize. They understand that there are certain mitzvot that are only for the Jewish people. But the idea is that they can still learn something from those things as well. Right. There are lessons for them to learn and there are things for them to understand. And so it's always about a process of clarification and coming closer and coming closer and how these things apply. And again, <clears throat> everyone is really is really um, involved in, in this whole plan of Hashem's. And, and if I may say, you know, the uh, the, the, the embodiment of all of this is our weekly Zoom classes that we have. We have Zoom classes every Sunday and every other Tuesday. Everyone is invited. And we have an audience that is very varied of Jews and non-Jews. And it's about a few things. It's about the joy of Torah study and knowledge. But it's also because, you know, there's an old saying that, um, one of our sages quipped that when we pray to Hashem, we're talking to him, but when we study Torah, he's speaking to us. And the experience of Torah study in all sincerity brings a person closer to Hashem because we hear that voice. And how can you serve Hashem and how can you appreciate him and how can you know how to draw close to him if you don't study Torah? Yeah, I, I, and I really, I really appreciate the way you expressed that a moment ago. The idea that, there, that, that so many of the mitzvot uh, are very specific to the nation of Israel and, and to your daily lives. And you could take, you could take um, um, a Hulk, like the, like the Proud Umar, like the ashes of the red heifer. Uh, we're not to carry that out, but just to learn the concepts and the truths that that, that simple uh, commandment, uh, the, when you break it down on a, on a um, even on a symbolic level, we learn so much about the nature of Hashem and the nature of creation from that. And those that are interested in involving themselves more with the practical application of the mitzvot, I suggest that you seek out a local competent Orthodox rabbi who will be able to instruct you in, in the performance of the mitzvot. You know, there are so many ramifications, you know, some famous questions. We're not even going to go there now because there, there's a lot about it on the internet and I've recorded things that you could find or I can send you questions like, well, should a non-Jew keep kosher and to what extent is there a concept of Shabbat for a non-Jew and to what extent should a non-Jew, could a non-Jew put him as Uzzah on his door? Write to me, rabbi at rabbirichman.com and, and I can tell you all about these things. It's a world, a world of understanding. And this brings me to one, to one more point that I want to make, uh, at least one, that is very important, Jim. Um, <clears throat> regarding the question of non-Jewish Torah study and perhaps one of the reasons why there are those that are put off by it and that say, no, they shouldn't. And, and um, what that's all about on one level is there is one issue that I have to clarify, and it's very, very important, and that is the whole concept of the oral Torah. Mm -hmm. Now, by the oral Torah, of course, I refer to the concept that when Moshe Rabbeinu, when Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, Hashem taught him everything there is to know about the application of the commandments throughout every generation, about what it's all about. The Torah itself, the Tanakh, is like a shorthand, like notes taken at a university lecture that are impossible to understand without the edification of the oral Torah. And Hashem in his ultimate wisdom gave two parts of the Torah, one Torah at once. And that's because the Torah is alive and, and it is uh, something that is 
is able to be given over from teacher to student in every generation. It takes in every consideration. And, and you know, there, there are disparaging ways that, that people refer to the oral Torah. They call it, uh, you know, man-made and it's rabbinical, rabbinical Judaism. And, and nothing could be further from the truth because it all comes from Hashem with the same divine authority. And so that's important to understand that chain of authority, as it were, coming down from Mount Sinai from Moshe to Yehoshua, to the, to the elders, to the prophets, and, the, and that whole idea. So when we talk about the oral Torah, you know, again, and we've talked about this before, the, it's still called the oral Torah today because its nature is that it's supposed to be given over orally because, and by the way, one of the main reasons for that is because it encourages questions. Because you see, Torah encourages asking questions. It doesn't hide from questions. But the thing is, even though now you can well nigh purchase any volume published it's still called the Oral Torah. There was a particular historical period when the Romans that were occupying the, the land of Judea were systematically assassinating and killing uh, and executing all the rabbis that had possessed this knowledge. And therefore, a, a decree was made that it could be written down. But originally, it was intended to only be transmitted orally. I'm talking about the Mishnah and the Talmud and the Midrash and, and so much in that tremendous body of, of literature, of holy literature, of Torah, right? So the thing is this. One of the issues when it comes to a, a non-Jew who's coming to study Torah is that he comes to certain parts of oral Torah, like the Midrash. Um, like we mentioned earlier this, uh, in, this, in this very broadcast, an, an idea. Uh, sometimes we find that the oral Torah employs metaphor, mm -hmm. it employs what seems to be parable, it employs uh, exaggeration, and, and um, again, I, I, I tell you that the Midrash is full of deep spiritual insights, psychological insights, psychodrama. There are many, many misunderstandings. But it also, it also sometimes is an explanation, an yes. opening up of a text. It always is an explanation, yeah. but the question is how to understand it. Right. So, so I, I must tell you that even in the Jewish world, there is a problem where, with people that do not understand how to approach this this learning, these, these um, teachings. And the Rambam, none other than Maimonides, who lived, what, 800 years ago, more, in one of his famous essays uh, that he writes as the introduction to one of the chapters in, in Tractate Sanhedrin, he talks about this very problem. And he says, and he divides people into three categories. This is one of the most amazing things, this essay by, my, by the great Maimonides. He divides people into three categories regarding their approach to, to the subject of Midrash. And he says, there's one category who are absolutely fools, he says, absolutely fools. And that is that they take every word literally and they, they don't understand at all what they're, what they're talking about because, it's there, because there are things that are absolutely not literal. And then he says, there's a second category of people. He calls them uh, kitots or katot, which means groupings, right? The mm -hmm. second grouping are people who think that they understand better than the sages and that the sages were a bit uh, limited in their understanding. So they're a bit, you know, they're woke, you know, and they, but they're woke and they understand. And he, and he basically, Rambam mocks those categories. He goes on to explain uh, how they exhibit themselves. And then he says, there's a third category, he says, which there's so few people in that category that you can't even call them a group. He says, he's, and it's very amazing what he writes there. He says, that would be like, call, like putting the sun in a category, but there's only one mm -hmm. with that brightness, right? 
So he says, and those, those people are so few and far between that you can't even call them a group. And those are people who understand that the, that the Midrash is a parable and a metaphor, and it's not to be taken literally. And there are so many examples. You know, we learn, we learn in Pasha Korach about Korach appearing before Moshe with, with men that are dressed in, in uh, talitot that are all techeilet. We learn so many things. Uh, we learn about uh, the, the, the forefathers and so many things that appear to be either. Uh, the one about Adam being able to see from one end of the, of the globe to the other. Well, that, that actually might be true. Oh. <laughs> okay, so here's the thing. Again, this is why one needs a teaching. One needs a tradition. That, because that's referring actually to the fact that before the sin of the, of the tree of knowledge mm-hmm. and before the Itzahara entered into him, he did have a, a clearer spiritual. But I understand where you're coming from. One of my favorite examples of this, uh, of what I'm trying to say, is that at the party that was made in 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 uh, Parshat Vayera, where when when uh, Isaac was weaned, right. so Avraham made a big party for all the great people of the generations, and the Midrash says that at that party, Sarah nursed all the babies. Right. Right. That came that everybody brought their baby and they had been mocking Avraham and Sarah because they knew that they were old and that they couldn't have children. So they had been mocking them. It says it says the clowns of the generation had been mocking them, saying, Oh, this old couple, they 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 found some sort of foundling in the shuk, you know, they found some sort of a of a waif, mm-hmm. and they're saying that it's their child. And the Midrash goes on and says, But at that party, Sarah. Imenu, our mother Sarah, nursed all the babies, and then everybody said, Oh. She did have Isaac. She is the mother. And what that is really all about is very, very beautiful and almost transparent when you really think about it for a moment. Mother's milk is the symbol of giving over, of nurturing, Nurturing. of education and and giving over. So, But basically what that was pointing out in terms of the praise of Sarah was that she really brought, that she did her part of Abraham's work and she basically taught the world, because because people from all over the world brought their children to be educated by Avraham and Sarah. So the metaphor of mother's milk and nursing is talking about that she gave over to them. Isn't right. there an expression to this day? People say, oh, it's in their mother's milk. Yeah. Right? Exactly. So there's an example of how one has to understand that the Midrash utilizes beautiful poetic vehicles to drive home beautiful, deep ideas. So why am I bringing all of this up? Because one of the issues why some rabbis are hesitant with non-Jews approaching certain areas of Torah study is because if they do not have the intellectual vessel, not intellectual, it's not an intellectual um, uh, limitation. It's a, it's a, a, a an issue of emunah. And as if they aren't connected to what's called emunat chachamim, which means that they, they believe in the tradition and the transmission of Torah from Chazal, from our sages. If they don't have that vessel developed, then they will come to this kind of thing and they will walk away from it and they'll say, oh, the whole Torah is ridiculous. This is not, this is not, you know, they can't be. Paul Bunyan, you know, whatever, seven feet tall, it can't be, all these kind of things because they don't understand that. There's a, an approach, but even Rambam, like over 800 years ago, he said, this is the problem with the, the, the world of Jewish Torah study is that people don't understand that how to approach this kind of study. If we know how to study Midrash, it is the most enriching and powerful uh, idea that, that comes across to us that really makes us appreciate the depth of Torah wisdom and what Hashem is trying to tell us. Mm. But this is this is the, the primary example in my mind of why it's so important for the sincere Noahide to have a teacher, to have a master, to have a rabbi that can be trusted, who can give over the Torah and 
and and it won't be misunderstood because if one tries to do it on their own, one can come to misunderstandings, and that would be a shame. And so this is this is just another another example of why some people might say that it's forbidden, and I say no, it's absolutely not forbidden. It is absolutely encouraged. It is absolutely the most important thing in the world. If you're talking about the age that we live in, if we're talking about, I will hasten it. If we're talking about the reciprocal relationship between Israel and the Gentiles, and what is their role of bringing forward the redemption? It's about plumbing the depths of Torah, bringing that light into our souls so that we become better and reflect Hashem's light in this world, bringing the whole world up and understanding the beauty of our relationship with Hashem. And that's what it's all about. That's what the Torah is all about. And it's the, and it's the greatest joy of our generation. And that's what the greatest blessing for me is Jerusalem Lights, because it is absolutely a vehicle that is bringing Torah to everyone. And that, it, that I would lay my life down for. That principle, I'm sure, is Torah true. I would submit to my to my Jewish brothers and sisters that it's probably a good time to remind them to look behind them these days and see if there's not 10 Gentiles ready to grab the corner of the garments. Jim, get your hand out from under the table there. Hello. So, so I want to thank all of our wonderful listeners for the blessings and prayers that they extended to me uh, as I have been recovering from uh, not feeling well. I'm thank God feeling so much better now encourage everyone to continue the odyssey of, of, of coming close to Hashem through Torah study, through observance of mitzvot. Let's stay in touch, rabbi at rabbiribishan.com. Wishing everyone a happy Shushan Purim Katan to create the vessel to bring in the light and the joy of the real Purim that's the real Purim, of the second Purim that's coming in, uh, coming up very soon. Jim, wonderful to have you here in the undisclosed location of the studios of Jerusalem Lights here in the historic Abernathy building oops, in, uh, in somewhere, and I hope the soup was good today. It was wonderful. Uh, not that I didn't offer him the hot dogs as well, but he, he just didn't want both today. No, no. Maybe he'll take one home. And have a wonderful, blessed week, everyone. Shalom, shalom. Sure.